electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Vaccines for kids. The CDC's advisory panel is just hours away from voting to give Pfizer's COVID shot to kids ages 5 to 11. We will speak to Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla about that and about the strong earnings that have the company's shares up almost 5% today. And inflation has eclipsed COVID as the number one threat to the economy, according to our latest CNBC survey. Steve Leisman will dig through those results and we'll speak to one strategist who says, while inflation will be persistent, it may not be as bad as you think. We'll reveal where he's seeing opportunities. And cars on demand, phones in your hand, and a home buying ban. We'll look ahead to to Lyft, T-Mobile, and Zillow results after the bell today in our earnings exchange. But before all that, we start with another day of record highs in the major averages. Dom Chu here with the numbers. It's a very poetic earnings exchange, by the way. I like that. I like that a lot. I would have tongue-tied me all up the wazoo here. But yes, to Kelly's point overall, we are at markets here with record highs for the three major indices. The Dow Industrials get that star. The S&P 500 get their star. And so does the NASDAQ Composite overall. Each of these three have hit record highs in trading so far today. Gains are being led, if you will, led, if you can say that. Half percent gains for the Dow Industrials, similar percentage gain for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite up one quarter of one percent. The Dow Industrials have notably taken back that 36,000 mark. If you look at one other part of the market, many traders have been seeing or pointing towards as a place where they could see a bit of a catch up. It's in the small caps. The iShares Russell 2000 has hit a record high in trading today. I will say this, although it's just a slightly bit lower on the session so far, what we've been trying to see is whether or not it could have broken out at some point across this kind of trading range that we've seen over the better part of the last 12 months. Today, we almost took a little peek above that, but we'll see whether or not there's momentum there. Now, two stocks that have been in the stories for a while now, Tesla, that topping $1 trillion valuation, hurts with that deal that may not be a deal because the ink hasn't been dry on the sign or they haven't signed anything yet. Well, Tesla shares are off about three and a half percent. Some of their calls also getting recalled for a software issue here. But Hertz Global up six and a half percent. That company continues to see the momentum tied in large part to that deal with Tesla that they may or may not have for supplies of electronic vehicles. Although Hertz says that they've already taken delivery of some of those. And by the way, let's stick Kelly on the rental car side of things, because the stock move of the day, you can make an editorial call here, but I'm going to look at the (laughs) near doubling of shares of Avis Budget Group. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. I will say that there is a fundamental case somewhat for a move higher, whatever degree that could be, because they come out with better than expected earnings and revenues. They also add an additional one billion dollars to their stock buyback. I will also say there's technical factors, Kelly, because this particular stock had about 20% of its shares outstanding short, bet against it, which does Dom, lead to some kind of surges and, you know, short squeezes and whatnot. So, I mean, you, this, is, this is a big deal. Is, is the, the stock is up 97% today? Yeah, today. That's today's move. <laughs> that, that's a doubling in today's. Now, now I mean, it's kind of crazy. If you look at the overall session so far, right, this particular move higher 
It's triggered a number, a slew of different trading halls throughout the course of the session. But this Avis budget trade, it's $336 right now. It got towards $500 at one point today. Oh, my God. Kelly, I will just say this. I went and looked back at the pandemic lows because remember at the pandemic, Travel-related companies like Avis Budget, like many others, took a huge hit. Yeah, this was a This was a sub-$7 stock wow. back during the depths of the pandemic just a year and we a half ago. We even checked to see if there was a lot of mention in Wall Street bets and that kind of thing. There isn't today. Actually, a lot of mention of Chegg. We'll talk about that later. But this is not a meme-driven stock. This is just one of the most phenomenal moves I can remember seeing in some time. And they threw some shade at Hertz on the call, too. It was just extraordinary. Dom, we'll see you again in a moment. Thank you, you sir. It. We really appreciate it, Dom sure. Chu, today. Let's look at shares of Pfizer now, which are surging about 5% themselves after they beat earnings and revenue estimates. They also raised full-year guidance on strong demand, both for the COVID vaccine and for non-COVID treatments. We're also awaiting the CDC's decision on giving its vaccine to kids. Meg Terrell is here with the details and with a special guest for us today. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, a big beat for Pfizer in the quarter. A lot of that, of course, driven by their COVID-19 vaccine, that beating both for the third quarter expectations and for the forecast for the full year, which Pfizer now raised to delivering 2.3 billion doses contracts signed, uh, equating to about $36 billion in expected revenue for the vaccine in 2021. Now, looking forward to next year, they have capacity to make 4 billion doses. They've signed contracts as of now for 1.7 billion and say they, of course, can uh, do more. That equates to $29 billion in forecast revenue, $7 billion more than the street was already looking for. Of course, as you said, uh, kids ages 5 to 11 could be just hours away from becoming eligible to get vaccinated here in the United States. So joining us to discuss that and a lot more is Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. Albert, thanks for being with us. Let's start on the CDC meeting and potentially expanding vaccine eligibility to kids down to age 5. A really huge day, potentially. What message do you have for parents who are weighing whether to get this vaccine for their young kids? It's a very positive message. I think uh, everybody's waiting uh, for it. And there are a lot of parents that they are in anxiety because uh, they see that the kids are protected themselves. They are protected, but not the kids. And now, hopefully, CDC also will put the last stamp to a very efficacious, very safe option. What is Pfizer expecting in terms of the uptake here among um, this age group? Has, have you guys done any market research to try to understand what the demand's going to be like? I haven't seen any data on market research, particularly for this uh, demand. But um, I think uh, I know that the U.S. government has uh, placed um, orders um, with us uh, that basically covers every kid of this country. So I think uh, uh, the, the supply will be there. And hopefully a lot of kids will benefit from it. Of course, there are also questions about when there will be data for even younger children. You gave some timelines on that today, uh, ages two to uh, up to age five uh, by the end of the year and ages six months up to two in the first quarter of next year. Is that a little later than you had expected? Are those trials going a little more slowly or is FDA asking for more information? Is that pushed back a bit? I don't think they are going slower. I think always we were expecting to have, uh, by the end of the year, the studies from the two to five, and those will be the efficacy studies. Um, FDA is asking more safety data, has already asked us, and then we, we are ramping up the numbers, but that will not affect, I think, the timing of the efficacy, because likely will be will read out um, on time. As safety, we may accumulate some more data to, to submit to the FDA. Albert, it's Kelly here. And Meg and I both have uh, Hi, very small children. So I think we're both personally interested in this. But 
How much more dangerous is the Delta variant than the Alpha or other variants for small children? And how does that play into the benefit of uh, or risk of, of giving them a COVID vaccine? Can you just sort of tell me where are they in terms of being in danger in the first place? Because obviously I can't really mask up, you know, a two-year-old. Yeah, of course you can. And um, are you asking because the two to five or the five to 11? More in the two to five and even the under two range. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, the kids that they are, um, this is a disease that um, is uh, exposing people and individuals and kids if they are in social settings. So kids, the moment they start going to the playgrounds and the moment they start going to to to, to kids' uh, uh, facilities, uh, they are exposed. The same is with, with schools. And um, uh, we have seen even severe cases in these kids. I have spoken to several pediatricians that they, they spoke to me about how many they have to 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 you know to to take care in a hospital setting. So uh, I think uh, the risk is there is uh, very very clear. Um, uh, I think the vaccine will be very safe. What I think we need to see it is in the doses that we are using it. It will be also effective. I'm very optimistic that it will be. Keep in mind that for these kids we are using two micrograms of RNA. Compare that to 30 micrograms of RNA for the adults. So it's a very 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 small dose. We believe that this very, very small dose that clearly will be very effective, I think, will also be, uh, that clearly will be very safe, I think also will be very effective. And this is what we are waiting to see. Albert, it's Meg. Just clarifying, it's, is it three micrograms or two micrograms for those younger kids? It is two micrograms. And I hope I'm oh, not making right. a mistake, Even but lower I think it's two I, micrograms. Than I thought. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, either way, it's it's much smaller than for adults. Um, I wanted to ask you also about your COVID antiviral drug. Um, we, we saw some very positive results from Merck already. Some not positive results from another company, Atia, partnered with Roche, although different trial designs. Do, how are you anticipating um, what those mean for the success of Pfizer's drug? And are you looking at potentially combining your oral uh, COVID pill uh, with Merck's or even with fluvoxamine, the uh, antidepressant for which we saw positive data recently? Yeah. First of all, I've seen the data of Merck and I need to congratulate them. These are great uh, uh, data, the 50% efficacy that they have reported. I think it is a significant contribution and I wish them um, best luck in uh, in their deliberations, submitting the data to FDA, etc. Well, our studies are ongoing and we expect that um, we will uh, have readouts on the efficacy likely before the end of the year. Um, we have three studies ongoing. The first study, it is very similar to what Merck has presented, which is the high-risk population. We have two additional studies. The first one of the two additional, it is in standard risk, so people that they do not have comorbidities or other type of diseases. And over there, we are also doing it to vaccinated people, um, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the only study currently in this type of population, and we are expecting uh, the scientific results of that with high interest. And also we are doing in house uh, household contacts, which is uh, we are giving people that they have disease, we are giving not only to them, but we are giving also to the people that they are living in the household as a prevention for them, treatment for the one that has gotten the disease and as prevention to the others. And also we are looking with high interest to see the results of that. Those studies will come in the first quarter, I think, of, of next year. Uh, uh, if, the if the studies are positive and we have high efficacy, we have already approved an investment of a billion dollars late in late summer 
and we already are manufacturing at risk. So I hope we are successful because we need options and we will have quantities even this year if we are successful. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about something you mentioned on the conference call, which was, you know, you've got a capacity to make 4 billion doses next year. Right now, 1.7 billion doses of contracts already set up. You, you kind of warned that we could be in a similar situation where low and middle income countries are not placing orders soon enough to get in the queue. Um, tell us about that dynamic. Are you worried we're going to continue to see this just stark inequity in vaccine access leading into next year? And what more can be done about that? I'm worried, and that's why I made the public statements. Look, what happened last year, as I said multiple times, that we risked to all, and we gave different prices. Those that they had high-income countries, one level of price, but the middle-income, half the price, and the low-income countries, at cost. But only the high-income countries placed orders in the beginning. And then I sent letters in private to the heads of states, because I saw it that uh, we will have a situation that people will say only high-income countries are getting and not low-income countries. They didn't respond positively to that. They didn't place orders. Then after things were settled and uh, we had great success and others, maybe they didn't manufacture as well. So everybody asked from us. But then all the first half of the year, doses had already been allocated to high-income countries. So now in the second half, we are sending a lot to low-income countries and middle-income countries. And by the end of the year, uh, which is in uh, a month and a half, or let's say in two months, we will have sent more than a billion doses to middle and low-income countries. But now we are coming to 2022, and there are some governments that they are more proactive, and I'm afraid, again, the high-income countries are the proactive governments that they are placing their orders, and mm -hmm. the low- or middle-income countries, they don't. Uh, and we do have the capacity to give them. And of course, at these prices that I said, non-for-profit at the low-income countries, severely discounted in the middle-income countries. But they should demonstrate the accountability and place the orders because the first half of 2022, again, we will allocate it very rapidly. Mm. All right, Albert, thanks so much for joining us. So much news coming up, and we hope <laughs> we'll get to see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Our Meg Terrell bringing us the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla. Again, their shares up 5% after earnings today. And we'll hear from the CDC this afternoon. We got a market flash for you. Netflix is jumping to a session high in just the past few minutes as the company says its gaming offering will begin rolling out tomorrow. Netflix games will launch on Android initially with iOS on the way later. The company promising exclusive games with no ads, additional fees or in-app purchases. Again, shares adding about half a percent. Now they're trading around 680. Still ahead, the latest results from CNBC's Fed survey. Inflation is now the number one threat to the economy. What to expect as the Fed meets today and decides tomorrow and which dips to buy are next. Plus, we're tackling transportation, telecom and tech real estate today as part of our earnings exchange. The action, the story and the trade for three key names reporting after the bell tonight. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu. We want to bring you a market flash on what's happening with Avis budget. We highlighted some of the extreme upside trading moves earlier in this hour, but we want to call your attention now to one of the brokers on Wall Street, namely TD Ameritrade, that has now implemented trading restrictions on shares of Avis budget. Certain types of option strategies are no longer allowed. You can still buy put options and call options. As long as you are long them, you cannot short or sell or write options against single options against either of these uh, names, rather an Avis budget. They've also banned short selling, not allowed at this time amid some other restrictions. Still, though, we just want to highlight the fact that some brokers are now reacting to the extreme volatility Kelly in Avis budget shares. TD Ameritrade's one of them. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, and we checked back in saying this must be a huge name. Wall Street bets, meme stock type thing. It has vaulted in the past two hours, Dom. It's like the number three one right now. I'll probably get even higher as the day goes on. Dom, thank you very much. COVID, meanwhile, is no longer the biggest threat to the U.S. economy. According to the latest CNBC Fed survey, it's now inflation. And they say the Fed needs to act now. Steve Leisman is here with the full results for us. Steve? Yeah, it is inflation, the number one threat response to the CNBC Fed survey, putting it ahead of COVID and loose monetary policy as the biggest threats to the economy. And they want the Fed to react right now. As you said, 60 percent of the 25 respondents don't want the Fed to taper its asset purchases. They think inflation is a big enough threat that it ought to halt those asset purchases right now. Just 32 percent, however, think the Fed ought to respond by raising rates now. Looking ahead at the inflation forecast, the concerns come along with higher inflation for this year and next. Forecasters raised their outlook for year-over-year CPI in 2021 for the seventh straight survey. Now stands at 4.8%, and it's up half a point to 3.5% for 2022, as you can see right there. More inflation, well, comes along with less growth. 70 basis points was shaved off the outlook for GDP this year, largely reflecting the much weaker than expected third quarter, you'll remember. 5% GDP in 2021 this year will give way to about 3.6% next year. That's still above trend, but as you can see, lower than it was previously forecast. All right, what do they think the Fed will do? The forecast is for the Fed to taper this month at a $15 billion monthly pace and raise rates beginning in September. But most would like to see the Fed react more forcefully to the threat of inflation, Kelly, right now. I mean, it's interesting, Steve, because I was going to say, I almost wish we could see nominal GDP. You know, if there was ever a time to nerd out about NGDP, now would be the time. Because when you have such high price appreciation, we all want to know, is that 2% real off an 8% NGDP or off, you know, a 3% one? And obviously, in this case, 
the higher, the better, even though it's still not great. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what goes around <laughs> comes around, right? You first you, you get away from following nominal GDP, and now maybe we ought to go back to it. Uh, you know, and Kelly, what's really smart about that point you're making there is, remember, earnings are nominal, right? So when True. you think about what the level of earnings are going to be, uh, it, it, earnings end up being a nominal number. The, the pie from which earnings are extracted is the nominal GDP pie. I mean, we can start by saying it's the inflation rate. Plus real GDP is a nominal number, which would mean double-digit uh, nominal GDP. So, yeah. um, you know, Kelly, I think we ought to let people just think about this for a while, and then they can, you know, maybe get a little more into the nerding out with us another time. <laughs> we'll have a special NGDP flash along with everything else. NGDP. <laughs> yeah, Steve, thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Our Steve Weisman with those results today. Yeah. Speaking of inflation and the Fed, my next guest says it's time to retire the word transitory and start thinking about how to best play the cycle from here. For more, let's welcome in Barry Knapp. He's managing partner at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Barry, welcome. I, what I like about your points is that you're, you're saying on the one hand, inflation is not transitory. But on the other hand, there are some strong positive signs for the cycle. You know, most people think if inflation is here, it has to mean sell stocks. And you're saying, no, you know, CapEx is strong. You're seeing other positive signs, right? Yeah, you, you went to one of the right people after your NGP, NGP <laughs> uh, discussion with Steve. <clears throat> I was one of the um, respondents to his survey, by the way, who said that they should, you know, start uh, or stop the purchases now. But no, that's exactly right. I think where people get lost in all this is we went from a very disinflationary environment for arguably three decades, and we are going to a reflationary regime Ultimately, we could get to that very inflationary regime, but before we get there, we need to work through just this higher level of nominal GDP and what it means. And there are there are some offsets. Listen, I'm definitely in the inflation is not transitory camp. However, if you think about this decade, and I've talked about this a little bit before, probably with you, when we went from the 50s to the 60s, we went from very sluggish, uneven growth, <clears throat> weak capex throughout the 50s. Um, financial repression, very tight bank regulatory policy. JFK gets elected in the early 60s with expansive fiscal and monetary policy, just like today. They lost interest in being the world's reserve currency. Inflation started to pick up. What happened to earnings growth and revenue growth was they accelerated. So the PE had gone from seven in 1946 to 20 by 1960. It stayed there because earnings growth went from eight in the 50s to 15 in the 60s, at least through 67, yeah. ultimately yeah. then it got out of control. Exactly. So that's, this is the big question. Are we in this reflationary regime for a time or have we skipped right to the 70s? And as we wait for the Fed's decision tomorrow, are you in the, you know, we've been saying for the past decade that the, in order to err on the side of caution, the Fed needs to keep conditions easy because NGDP growth was very low and because they needed, you know, every time they were talking about uh, tightening, the market would freak out and, and sort of signal, no, it's too early, it's too early, it's too early. Well, is this cycle different? You know, do you basically want them? I think Goldman just pulled the first rate hike into next summer. Do you want to see that kind of response here? I think ultimately they'll they'll need to have that kind of response. But what I think could happen first, and this might be one of the first big themes or trades in 2022, is we have a bit of a Fed, a Fed credibility crisis. So depending on what the new Fed board looks like, assume Claret is gone. In my view, he's probably the driving force for monetary policy theory on the Fed, not Powell, Clarida. 
if you replace him with someone viewed as significantly more dovish, the markets may decide in early 2022 that the Fed is hamstrung or handcuffed by their process. Right. And you start to see the dollar weakening and inflation break-evens moving aggressively wider. And then the Fed gets forced to react more forcibly. forcibly. So maybe then that means as soon as they end asset purchases, they immediately go to balance sheet runoff. Right. And that those rate hikes get accelerated. Right now, they're priced reasonably aggressively, but there's more that could happen, and the Fed and, could find themselves and, very much behind the curve. And let me just end in case people get the wrong idea. You, your recommendations right now are not that this is that scenario is definitely happening. You're saying stick with industrial, stick with software, semis, the reflation trade. You know, this is where you think people should be putting their money right now. Yeah, no question. I mean, again, I continue to draw on that 60s analog when we went to a reflationary regime. I don't believe the Fed is going to be vindicated in their transitory view next year. I think core inflation is going to run much faster than they expect. But that I'm still not skipping straight to the 70s. So right. if I have to do the Kathy Wood versus you know uh, Dorsey debate, you know I think they're both wrong. <laughs> You're making a lot of friends uh, easily here. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much. Really appreciate it today. Barry Knapp with Ironsides Macro. Coming up, the housing stimulus. The rush of refis is providing an infusion of cash to households, and investors may be overlooking this under-the-radar stimulus. We'll explore. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a quick check on the markets. We got about four-tenths percent gains for the Dow and S&P, and the NASDAQ is the trailing one today by a tenth percent gain. And Under Armour shares are surging after they beat earnings estimates and raise their full-year forecast. The retailer now expects this year's sales to be up 25 percent from last year. Under Armour is up 17.5 percent today, nearly 50 percent since January, and it's outperforming both Lululemon and Nike. On the flip side, a pretty disastrous day for Chegg, the online tutoring name. On pace for its worst day ever, it's down by 47 percent. Why? They missed sales and uh, the revenue, I should say, missed estimates for the first time in 19 quarters. Enrollment didn't bounce back as it had expected as remote learning ends. The stock getting tons of downgrades, at least six this morning on Wall Street. For more detail on those calls, head over to CNBC.com slash pro. And Chegg's CEO will be on closing bell today. Over to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Ethiopian government has declared a state of emergency. This as rival forces from the Tigray region gain territory and consider marching on that nation's capital. This morning, the U.S. said it plans to suspend trade benefits for Ethiopia over human rights concerns. In Nigeria's capital, the death toll has now risen to 16 following the collapse of a high-rise apartment building. Dozens are still reported missing. The search for survivors continues after torrential rain stopped that search briefly overnight. The market for rental homes is getting tighter. Rental agency rates fell below 6% in the third quarter. That's the lowest level in more than a year. 
The vacancy rate is being closely watched as economists look for signs of how long that current high inflation will last. And in North Carolina, a school bus crash has killed the driver and hospitalized four students. Multiple tow trucks were needed to get that bus back on the road. State police are investigating the possible cause of the accident. On the news tonight, election day across America. Some key races for governors and mayors and a vote on policing in Minneapolis. All of that tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time. You're up to date, Kelly. Send it back to you. I always love election night, Sue. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Coming up, Lyft has beaten revenue expectations in 10 out of the past 10 quarters. Can they make it 11? T-Mobile down more than 20% over the past three months. Can a strong third quarter right the ship? And when a flip flops, Zillow shares falling and reports it's looking to offload housing inventory. All that and how to be positioned ahead of its earnings after the bell, next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to the Earnings Exchange, everybody. Season is in full swing, and we have three key stocks reporting after the bell. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Lyft, T-Mobile, and Zillow today. Let's start with Lyft. That company is expecting revenues around $860 million and a loss of two cents. The key question is, can they handle a persistent driver shortage without raising fares too much on riders? The shares are down more than 4% today and more than 30% off their 52-week high. Dear Jabosa is standing by for a little preview here. Dear, I guess post the expiration of those pandemic jobless benefits, they're not seeing as much of an increase in driver supply, which is would help with prices as they thought. Yeah, exactly. And the core problem here, as you said, Kelly, is that supply, the driver supply. We know that both Lyft and Uber have been pouring millions into this problem, trying to give drivers more incentive to get back on the platform. But we just talked about Amazon's quarter, right? They're starting at what an average pay of $18 an hour. How do the ride sharing companies compete with that? Plus very limited benefits, because remember, drivers are still independent contractors, so they may continue to have trouble. Dara Khazar Shahi of Uber said that they could actually pull back on those incentives last quarter, but Lyft said they were leaning into them. So how does this all shape up? It could weigh on revenue per ride, which is something that uh, that Lyft flagged last quarter, saying that sequentially it may be down once again. On the bright side, though, the company has reached adjusted EBITDA profitability, so we will see if that is sustainable. True. All right, Deirdre, thank you. And Chris Crisanti is uh, our trader today. He's the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Chris, what would you do with Lyft here? And feel free to extend that comment to Uber or any others you think might be more attractive. Sure. Well, Kelly, it's nice to be with you again. Here, of course, you look at the fundamentals for earnings, but you also have to look at the expectations. And I think the expectations for Uber are pretty low right now. The stock has languished since March. The problem, as Deirdre pointed out, is labor. The drivers just aren't coming back. And this red herring of unemployment benefits going away, it hasn't proved to be the solution to the problem. So I'm really quite nervous about the squeeze and labor costs here and what is basically a commodity business. So I'd be on the sidelines here, and that's what I'd pay attention for in the commentary to the earnings call. It doesn't sound like anything in earnings could get you back into the stocks then. I mean, unless they said, hey, in the past 24 hours, the situation is you know, total right. change here. Sure. Now, now on the plus side, consumers have a lot of money and they don't mind so much the price increases, but that's going to have a cap to it. And the squeeze from the cost coming up on the bottom to what the consumers can accept on the top, is, is it seems to me like it's going to get tighter and tighter. All right. And as we mentioned, Lyft is down four and a half percent today, along with Uber and Didi. Uh, Deirdre, thank you again. Let's move along to T-Mobile, which is set to report in what's been a really tough stretch for the telecom sector. If you think ride sharing is bad, 
Telecom is way worse. T-Mobile is down 15% this year, tracking with rival AT&T, which itself is at an 11-year low. It's all about subscribers in this space as the 5G rollout continues. Is telecom already too saturated? Julia Borson is here with the story. Julia, it's so ironic to me that you have this amazing, you know, these great numbers for Apple, at least in terms of the demand. And I don't understand why all of telco right now just seems to be such a, a mess. Well, here's the thing, Kelly. We have to look at the big numbers that AT&T and Verizon just reported in terms of subscriber growth. AT&T and Verizon both beat expectations and posted their best subscriber gains that we've seen in quite some time. Hmm. Now, T-Mobile has traditionally been taking share from these companies, taking share from AT&T. So there are some concerns that T-Mobile, which has been steadily growing, you know, better service, it's been having a better network, also very competitive, making a big play in terms of marketing, that this could be the quarter that T-Mobile's gains come to an end. So the number we're watching is subscriber additions, total subscriber subscriber editions expected about 1.23 million. So I would keep an eye on that number. And just remember, Kelly, there are also two new competitors in the market. One of them is from Comcast, CNBC's parent company. They now have an Xfinity mobile option. And then you also have a charter new mobile option from Spectrum. So you have these new players. They did better than expected. The old guys, AT&T and Verizon, they're doing better than expected. The question is, did they then still share perhaps from T-Mobile? Chris, I'll I'll pose that to you. Would you be interested in, you know, we always say the time to buy is what everyone else is selling. Would that extend to these companies right now? Well, I'll tell you, Julia did some good reporting. I would take the other side of the coin, though, and say, hey, look, maybe this is evidence that the entire pie is growing. So if both AT&T and Verizon could have growing numbers, so may T-Mobile. Uh, I'd also say that management for T-Mobile, again, getting back to expectations, they've been talking down numbers for a couple of months now at different meetings. So I don't see a lot of downside in the stock. This is a stock waiting for a catalyst. So I see it kind of as dry kindling, Kelly. And uh, any piece of good news here with such low expectations could be great for the stock. Julia, I also wonder when we're talking about competition, it's more and more obvious the way that, you know, your mobile plan might compete with your at-home Wi-Fi. And honestly, more people are even thinking about the potential of something like Starlink in a couple more years to offer a rival internet type of service. Is that the problem here that there, you can now kind of see that future in which there are going to be a lot of options? I don't think people are making decisions right now on an option that's going to be existing years in the future. I think right now the challenge is that there have really been price wars in this space. And yes, maybe it's possible that we're going to see all of these companies make gains. But it is true that T-Mobile has traditionally been the one that's been able to be competitive on pricing, improve its network, and take share from the other companies. But I, I wouldn't underestimate the role that some of these new players could play in this new ecosystem when you look at a Comcast and a charter really wanting to provide an alternative to the big three as we move forward. But I think it's a question about pricing. I don't really know if 5G is driving people to switch providers to change their plan, but that's another factor to watch going forward. Absolutely, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. Julia, thank you so much, Julia Borston. All right, finally today, a huge drop for Zillow ahead of their earnings today. The stock is now down more than 12.5% on reports that the company bought too many homes to flip and is now trying to offload them. Zillow is down 35% this year and down 60% from its 52-week high. Dom Chu is standing by, Dom. And people, I mean, online, people love to find, you know, sales, Zillow sales that they think are going for like pennies on the dollar to make this point about 
whether the business model is, is you know, going to work in the long run. I mean, we used to talk about it as, as the idea that you, you use Zillow as an information source, right? I, I'd go on there just to see how much I think my house could be worth, how much my neighbor's houses are worth. But all these stories about how many homes Zillow's algorithmic artificial intelligence home buying service had purchased that are now worth less than they paid for them, it's, it's pretty staggering. Considering this is the hottest housing market since before the great financial crisis back in 0809. So analysts over at KeyBank, they did try to put some more solid numbers and context around what it would cost Zillow. They analyzed 650 of the houses that Zillow has in inventory right now and found that 429 of them were below purchase price for an average four and a half percent discount for each of those properties. Now, this is also a very competitive industry, right? So for, for these iBuyers or, or instant buyers, so to speak. Yeah. These are the companies that can give you a cash price for what you pay for your home. Look at Redfin, Opendoor, Offerpad, other platforms. But this is a red-hot housing market, Kelly. You wonder why a company that does housing isn't going up in value. And we can show it again, but their forward PE, Chris, is still over 100. So, you know, right. when people get exercised about what's going on over at Tesla, I mean, this P.E. is incredibly high. And you do wonder about the earnings trajectory there as they've done this flip-flop on the selling business. Well, I think Dom is exactly right. I, I mean, this is the best uh, housing market for a seller in a generation. And these guys are going to lose a bunch of money selling houses. So w what's up with that? So that's a big <laughs> management miscue. Uh, and I think there's frankly just too many moving parts going into this earnings report. I wouldn't get in front of it. Uh, and I frankly think there's probably more shoes to drop because they've lost confidence now. Having said that, it's a great business. Zillow has mind share. They're disintermediating folks in the real estate space like others have done in other digital spaces. So I think long term, this is very interesting. And after the earnings come out, I take a magnifying glass, I go through them and try to figure out the right entry point. As you point out, Kelly, uh, it still seems pretty expensive. Yeah. And you say that magnifying glass tells you we are not there yet. Chris, I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Chris Crisanti uh, with his trade. Zillow CEO Rich Barton will join Closing Bell today at 4 p.m. for an exclusive interview uh, right around the time we should expect those earnings results. Really looking forward to that. Dom, thank you as always. Dom Chu. Still ahead, some companies could see big moves higher thanks to the new emissions targets announced at COP26 at the Climate Summit. We'll dig into the names and the moves next. Welcome back, everybody. President Biden announcing tougher regulations on emissions from American oil and gas wells. It's just one of the new proposals from the COP26 climate summit. And it's not just the environment these rules could impact. There's huge implications for the markets, too. In fact, Pippa Stevens is here with more to explain how we're already starting to see those impacts felt. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, officials gathered in Glasgow for COP26 saying governments can't do it alone. The role the private sector, capital markets and investors play is also in sharp focus. Annual clean energy investment needs to hit $4 trillion by the end of this decade. According to the International Energy Agency, hundreds of companies across just about every sector will have to be involved. Now, with climate change in focus right now, Bank of America said stocks directly related to solutions like Nextera Energy, Enphase Energy, and Waste Connections will benefit. Tech is also critical to a greener future, and stocks exposed to the three E's of electric vehicles, electrification, and emissions also stand to gain. Chip companies are the backbone of this, and Credit Suisse highlights analog devices and NXP semiconductors. 
And then somewhat forgotten are the green ablers, as Goldman Sachs calls them. These companies are vital but often overlooked since they're earlier in supply chains. The firm pointed to cybersecurity company Palo Alto Networks, as well as power infrastructure named Qantas Services, as stocks that are currently under-owned by climate and ESG-focused funds. But, Kelly, clean energy stocks are down today, so a little bit of questions here about what these policies at COP26 will, will ultimately mean for the group. And, I mean, they had such a monster October. Maybe a little buy the rumor, sell the fact as well. Pippa, thank you so much. Solar ETF down about 4% today. Coming up, while the third and final round of government stimulus checks went out back in March, some Americans have gotten an under-the-radar cash boost. We have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. According to real estate analytics firm Black Knight, the refi boom is providing stimulus to the economy as more than 14 million homeowners refinanced during the pandemic, with 2020 and 2021 being the biggest years on record. Low rates save borrowers $14 billion over the last year and a half, and Black Knight now projects a savings of $35 billion by the end of 2022. But with rates on the rise, is the boom about to go bust? Joining me now is Andy Walden, Director of Market Research at Black Knight. Andy, welcome. This is an interesting coda on the fact we've spoken with Loan Depot and other mortgage originators whose shares have struggled this year because the refi boom is trickling to an end. Um, it has been a massive stimulus for people, hasn't it? It absolutely has. And you just mentioned some of the numbers, $35 billion in potential aggregate savings realized by the end of next year. And that's on top of the $320 billion that folks have cashed out from equity over the last year as well. Wow. Okay. So where do you think all that money is going? Can you guys tell? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of it's being re-injected into the market in terms of other goods and services. When you look at those cash out funds specifically, it tends to go more towards debt consolidation and renovation type activities. All right. And clearly we've seen a boon there in, in related stocks, Home Depot, Lowe's uh, and all the rest of it. Um, but it's trickling off, isn't it? So how much do you expect going forward? Maybe higher rates will be a catalyst for kind of a few people out there who think, geez, I better do it now. But pretty much it's done. Right. I guess that's my point about the shares of things like Lone Depot. If they thought a lot more was coming, they wouldn't be down double digits this year. And if you look at it, I guess it's a, it depends on where you look, right? If you look compared to where we've been over the last few months, refinance incentive is certainly down almost 50, 50% from where we were in December last year. If you look prior to 2020, though, we still have 10 million refinance candidates out there, folks that could save three quarters of a percent through the refinance of their mortgage. That would be at an all-time high in any year not named 2020 or 2021. So wow. historically speaking, Still a lot of incentive out there, but nowhere near where we had been over the last few months. So basically 14 million refis during the pandemic, nearly 9 million this year. And you think we still have 10 million out there? There's, there's the potential for 10 million more. Now, not all of those borrowers will act on that incentive, but historically speaking, incentive is still relatively strong. So if they do that, we're talking about another kind of stimulus that's waiting in the wings. Is there any reason people might be waiting? Because anecdotally, what I hear is a lot of people go, yeah, my rate's already pretty low. I don't know how much I'd save doing it. Yeah, and I, if they're waiting, I, I don't think I would be, right? I think the long-term long projection for 30-year interest rates, especially as the Fed begins to step back its QE efforts and begins to raise short-term rates, the long-term trajectory, at least forecast for 30-year rates, is for them to go up. So if folks are waiting on the sidelines, I think now is the time to act if they haven't been already. 
Yeah, and here's another incredible stat. You guys say tappable equity is an all-time high of $9.1 trillion. So again, a lot of that so far going to homeowners with high credit scores, but uh, the potential is there. Andy, thanks as always for joining us with an update. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Andy Walden with Black Knight. Coming up, Democrats are making a big bet that the IRS can recoup up to a trillion dollars of unpaid taxes from the wealthy. Whether they can actually catch those targets next. Welcome back. Democrats are banking on catching wealthy tax cheats as one of the main ways to pay for President Biden's lofty economic agenda. Robert Frank is here with the details and whether it's going to be possible, Robert. Yeah, Kelly, this is actually the largest source of revenue in that new tax framework. It's a line item called IRS Investments to Close the Tax Gap, estimated to raise $400 billion over 10 years. Now, the plan calls for Congress to invest $80 billion in the IRS to crack down on wealthy tax evaders. Audit rates for millionaire earners have fallen by over half over the past decade. That's as the IRS has lost over 17,000 enforcement staff. Now, the new proposal calls for for hiring back thousands of those auditors and improving the agency's technology systems to better detect non-payment. The White House says all the audit growth will be on the wealthy, or those making more than $400,000 a year, mainly on pass-throughs and private companies. The big unknown here is whether they can actually reach that $400 billion target. Estimates of the tax gap are all over the map. The latest official estimate from the IRS is at $380 billion a year. Treasury says it could be $600 billion. IRS Chief Charles Reddick recently said it could be a trillion. It's also unclear how much of that gap is from the wealthy. Treasury said it's only about a quarter of the total. And you have accountants and tax lawyers saying much of what the IRS may consider evasion is actually legal avoidance using all the creative loopholes in, Kelly, what you and I know is a very complex tax code. So in the end, it may not raise as much as they expect. Let's go back to what you said a second ago. So the premise of this is they want to catch wealthy tax cheats, but by their own estimates from the IRS, 75 percent of the evasion is coming from people who aren't wealthy. That's right. And, and that's part of the issue. And then part of the issue, they don't even know what that broad pie looks like, even if the wealthy are only about a quarter of it. So again, their estimates, it's at 380, their estimates at a trillion. And by nature, you don't know how much is evaded until you hire all those agents and find out. So this is just a giant guess. And again, it is the largest revenue source in this new plan. So it's important. I think also what I'm trying to say is it's sold as going after the wealthy, but in reality that they're just a small piece of it and they might be able to get around it. So it really means they're coming after you. Right. And, and, and again, we don't know that that quarter estimate is really just an estimate based on a certain slice of audits they did. And, and they may end up raising a lot more from the wealthy, and that share of the total pie could be larger. You just don't know. I mean, by yeah. nature, you know that the biggest dollar numbers will come from auditing the wealthy because th- those are the folks that make the most and avoid the most. Absolutely. Well said. Robert, we always appreciate it. Thank you, Robert Frank, digging through the pay-fors of these bills. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.